For the type of journalism I enjoy doing and I think that makes impact, it's not your job to tell people what to think. It's your job to present the evidence as fairly and as balanced as you can and let other people reach their own conclusions. You don't need to tell people what to think. Welcome to JLab, a podcast brought to you by the Civic Journalism Lab at Newcastle University. My name's Ian Wiley, and in this episode, our guest is Hannah Barnes, a documentary journalist for the BBC's Newsnight programme. Hannah's reports with science correspondent Deborah Cohen and her subsequent book about the rise and fall of the Gender Identity Development Service for Children, or JIDS unit, at the Tavistock and Portman NHS Foundation Trust in North London, are the result of intensive reporting carried out across several years and based on more than 100 hours of interviews with JIDS clinicians, former patients and other experts. Yet evidence exclusively seen by Newsnight reveals serious tensions at the heart of JIDS. We've seen well over 100 pages of transcripts of interviews conducted with staff as part of the review. They make a series of claims. JIDS was established to provide talking therapies to young people who were questioning their gender identity. But 15 years after the service was founded, staff began expressing concerns about the rapid rise in patient referrals to endocrinologists who would prescribe hormone blockers designed to delay puberty. Many young people with complex case histories of autism, eating disorders or histories of family abuse were being referred to the service and then given puberty blockers. Clinicians interviewed by Hannah for her Time to Think book compared it to the East German doping scandals of the 1970s or feelings at the Midstaffs Hospital in the 2000s. The clinic will shut later this year to be replaced by a number of regional centres that will aim to offer more holistic The shutdown came after an independent review found shaky scientific evidence for pushing hormones, puberty blockers and surgery. This has been a very difficult subject for Hannah to report. Some trans people see criticism of JIDS as attempts to stop children transitioning at all. Some gender-critical campaigners treat its closure as vindication of wider arguments. But Hannah's book points out that this isn't a culture war story. This is a medical scandal. And yet, while her scrupulous and meticulously researched journalism, with 70 pages of notes and references, has been widely praised in reviews from The Guardian to The Telegraph, more than 20 publishers passed on the chance to publish her book. Her eventual publisher, Swift Press, struggled to find people who would even copy-edit the book or design its cover. But I began our conversation by asking Hannah how she became a journalist and what interested her in reporting this kind of story. Well, thank you for having me. Um, I'm Hannah Barnes. I'm currently investigations producer at BBC Newsnight and I've been at the BBC now for coming up for 15 years. Um, I haven't always wanted to be a journalist, no. Um, It sort of came to me sort of during the end of university, but I didn't do any student journalism. And after I graduated, I worked for a sort of political news agency. Uh, It was a subscription service and essentially we wrote analysis of parliamentary events. So we went to select committees and we wrote analysis of big debates on various pieces of legislation. And it was that really that I, that job that I thought, no, it's not quite 
newsy enough for me. I want that's when it sort of really cemented. And during that time, I was doing hospital radio. I had a show and I'd done some work experience at my local paper, which was the Richmond and Twickenham Times. Um, and then I went to City University to do a postgraduate diploma in broadcast journalism. And after that, I went into commercial radio for a few years. It was very, very difficult then, as it is now, to get into the BBC. And I think we all felt, yeah, I'm going to go and be a war correspondent for the BBC at 25 or something. And it, it doesn't work like that. So I went to work in commercial radio for what was then GCAT, which would now be Global. Uh, I worked first down in Sussex in Crawley for a station called Mercury. And I was the breakfast newsreader and reporter. And then I moved to Birmingham to one of the, I mean, really most long-standing, famous commercial stations, what was then called BRMB in Birmingham. Um, and similarly was reporter and a newsreader there. And I joined the BBC in 2008. And I joined what was then called Radio Current Affairs. It's now called Long Form Audio. And I joined as a researcher. And the department really makes all of those much-loved, long-standing, regular Radio 4 documentary programmes or magazine programmes. So it makes, uh, it did then anyway, make Moneybox, More or Less, uh, File on Four, From Our Own Correspondent, Analysis, all these kinds of things. And I joined the team that was making uh, a programme at the time called Donal McIntyre, which then became Five Live Investigates, because I'd won Scoop of the Year while I was working down in Sussex for the IRN Awards. I'm a naturally nosy person. I always really liked digging up stuff and investigating. And, and that's where I sort of started at the BBC. And I worked on a, a variety of programmes. I was in current affairs for many years. And then I often did a programme called The Report for, for Radio 4. Then I went to Today for a year, the Today programme, and was one of the output editors. So horrendous hours, overnights, and you're the one who's in the ear of John Humphreys and Jim Nockerty, as it was then, and Justin Webb, Michelle Hussain, all, all those great people, Sarah Montague. And then I went back to Current Affairs for a bit, and then I joined Newsnight in 2016. And I've done all sorts of roles there, reporting, producing, output editing again. And that's <laughs> that brings us up to date, I suppose. What sort of stories in particular do you do you go looking for what kind of stories get you up in the morning I don't really like the phrase investigative journalist because I think that's the job of every journalist isn't it is to investigate so I and actually David Aronovich from who well it's just left the times but we worked together on a couple of programs years ago and he said it's analytical journalism and that's what I like sort of digging away um you know I worked on more or less for several years which is Radio 4's flagship program which sort of investigates numbers in the news and I think it's our job as journalists to question the orthodoxy and really ask that fundamental question is that true not in a cynical way or you know I don't you can't you can't question everything in life obviously but I think um and I've always been a very source-based journalist because I think when you're doing difficult or controversial stories the safest way and the most compelling way to tell that story is from actual source material for example I made a Radio 4 documentary on Kids Company the children's charity as it was collapsing and and we actually got an interview with the head of that charity Camilla Batman-Gellage on the day it was closing and 
people coming in and taking stuff out. And, and really, the story of the difficulties that Kids Company faced were all in public documents. Um, you know, the, the claims about how many children they were helping, the financial situation, which was pretty extraordinary and, and not very healthy. They were all contained in, in, in public documents. And I think often, often it's a practical thing that we don't have time, but information is there if you go looking for it. And I think that's really the kind of journalism I like to do. What was your introduction to the subject then of gender transitioning of, of children? Uh, what was what was the spark or the um, the event that just sparked your curiosity in, in JIDS and, and what was happening there? I mean, I came across it, first of all, I think, around 2017. I was I was off on maternity leave with my, my eldest child and had a bit more time, you know, and was just reading a lot. So there wasn't much around then, but that was when I first sort of came across it. But I didn't really think huge amount about it, just thought it was interesting. And I suppose it was really at the beginning of 2019 when David Bell's report was leaked or some of the findings were leaked to the Sunday Times. And for those who don't know, Dr David Bell is a very eminent psychiatrist and psychoanalyst at the Tavistock Trust. And at the time, he was on the Council of Governors as the staff representative. And what had happened was 10 members of staff from the Gender Identity Development Service had gone to him in that role and relayed some quite significant concerns that they had about how the service was functioning and questioning whether the best care was always being provided to each and every one of those young people. So that was leaked. And I was very fortunate that that, that Newsnight just gave me time and space to have a look, really, make some phone calls, go and meet people. And that's how it really came about. And and I, I, I was introduced to several people and I met Dr. Anna Hutchinson, who's who features heavily in the book in in May. And she was very cautious to start with, as as people probably understand that, you know, sources don't tell you everything the first time you meet them. But, you know, she had relayed really this very dramatic shift in referrals to me and the demographic shift that, that the service had seen. And also um, this idea that, that actually puberty blockers appeared to be functioning in a way that was not how they initially had thought. So there was those two things. And, and we met in, in, in central London. And that's when I thought there's something here. And the way into it, we felt the best way into it was to start sort of from the roots, which was what's the evidence base. And that's that's where we started at Newsnight together with my colleague, Deborah Cohen, who has a medical background. She's a trained doctor. And we, we, we felt we'd start there because our approach was always, you know, evidence based, trying to analyse the standard of care. It was never about questioning the right to transition or or those young people in themselves. Of course not. It was about whether the service being provided by JIDS was always safe, really. You know, we, we just applied the same level of scrutiny to that service as we would to any other part of the NHS. How had JIDS been reported up until that point? The vast majority of the reporting on JIDS had been very positive, had been about the work that they did in supporting young people to to live the lives that they wanted to. And, and I acknowledge that in the book, that it, it has obviously helped some young people. There was very, very little... I use the word critical, but in a very broad sense. I don't, I mean, in a, 
there was very little questioning about it. There was a string of articles in the April of 2019 by Lucy Bannerman at the Times, which was kind of the first, not the first, but the re- really sort of pretty, you know, shining a light on, on some of these things. And I, But I think in the broadcast industry, there was very little, I mean, if any, there was a little bit at Sky, but 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 really not very much. And I think until Newsnight did it, to be fair, those NHS England, for whatever reason, hadn't really engaged. And I think, you know, Deborah's background and the fact that the way we approached it and the fact that I, you know, had done many investigations in the past as well, and we were very calm in our reporting, I think, I think that really helped. And you know that that first piece we started there and then and then we i mean broadly we looked at what can we learn from those for whom the treatment hasn't worked so we looked at detransitioning and you know mermaids took part in that and were happy with the way that we had treated that again it was very compassionate and we weren't saying that it was a majority at all um but that actually perhaps care could be improved by understanding better those for whom it doesn't work as well you know it can be improved for everybody um and then we gained sight of these transcripts from an official review into jids which really called into question the public statements made by the service that nothing from dr david bell's previous report had been upheld and really they called that into question there were some very serious concerns raised during the course of those interviews with the medical director about safeguarding about potentially child protection issues and and I think that film which we well it was it was delayed because of Covid but that went out in June 2020 that film I think really made a huge impact both in terms of public awareness but also in terms of real action happening from those who had power to 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 change things so we saw very quickly dr hillary cass was commissioned to undertake a independent an independent review of this area of healthcare that happened in the september um as a direct result of of those of that film the cqc inspected jids in the october and november and that report came out in, in January 21 and rated them inadequate. Um, and of course, alongside that, you had the judicial review proceedings, uh, which were challenging whether young people could provide consent to, to treatment with puberty blockers for, for gender-related distress. So I, I, I'm not saying it's the sole factor, but I think Newsnight's reporting really played a large role in bringing a questioning tone to some of the practices, but... You know, we always aim to do that in a in a calm and evidence-based way. Um, and it really, I think, has brought about change. Why did NHS England and other news organisations not have that questioning approach, do you think? I don't think there's a simple answer. What clinicians who worked at the service have told me is that perhaps because the word gender was involved with this service, it wasn't treated in the same way that other parts of the NHS are. You know, one one clinician described it, I think Anna Hutchinson said it sort of muddied the waters. Another clinician who spoke to me said it it created this kind of cloak of mystery, if you like, and there was a 
perhaps an assumption by the commissioners at NHS England that these were the specialists, so we, we won't we won't keep an eye on it. I mean, talking to health sources, I think there is an acknowledgement that, that they were too slow to act. I think there were several factors, sort of practical factors. I mean, one is specialist commissioning in the NHS encompasses hundreds of different services. So I think for many years, it just wasn't on the radar because it was so small. I think secondly, they wanted to give the service an opportunity to try and change things themselves. And I think by by 2020, it was perhaps apparent that things weren't changing. And I think also on a practical level, there really wasn't, as we're seeing now, with the difficulties in, in setting up these new services that will eventually replace JIDS, it wasn't like there was another provider out there who was chomping at the bit to replace it. And I think while NHS England absolutely have to be questioned for their lack of oversight here, to be fair to them, they didn't want to close a service, if you like, on the extreme level, but they didn't want to stop a service that was and, and leave these children with nothing. So I, I, th- I think there are lots of things. When doing your interviews with the clinicians, but also in the book, you speak with some of the children affected as well um, and tell their stories. What, what were the challenges in approaching this subject matter and and doing it in this calm and dispassionate way as, as, as you've described, Hannah? I think there were lots of challenges. So firstly, on the, on the young people themselves, I mean, they're all adults now, but they all went through JIDS. I think sometimes when this issue is discussed, I think the language can be quite inflammatory and unfortunate. I I always try to keep in my mind that however critical one could be of the service and the way it behaved, we are actually talking about people here and actually children and young people. And so I I felt that was really important to try to keep that calm tone. And, And with those case studies, if you like, for want of a better term, I felt it was really important to put it in their own words. It wasn't for me to then analyse or particularly question their accounts because that was their experience. They all provided me with paperwork. They all were there. I mean, I questioned in that sense that, you know, I I checked. I I spoke to other people who are not quoted in the book and, and where there are things that actually were sort of demonstrably false from either the timeline. Obviously, I didn't include it. Like I, I fact checked, but... I just thought it was very important. And I think those case studies are so important because it shows actually the breadth of experience that they received at the service, you know, some of whom were very happy, some of whom were actually very badly harmed. And I think we can't deny that. But also the breadth of experience and and different pathways, if you like, different outcomes for, for young people who are questioning their gender identity, both for whom will remain trans into adulthood and and for those who won't. So, you know, I spoke to um, medically and surgically transitioned, very happy trans adults. I spoke to trans adults who haven't done that and who don't want to and had a terrible experience with puberty blockers in particular. I spoke to people who came through their gender related difficulties and, and didn't identify as trans any longer. And I spoke to those for whom who medically and surgically transitioned who were very very unhappy and and reversed that and had begun to identify again as their natal sex so a huge spectrum I mean the difficulties in talking to the clinicians well gaining people's trust I mean I think the fact that I had been doing it for the covering the story for 
two or three years before writing the book helped because I knew some people, I mean, nowhere near the number of people that I ended up speaking to. And I think that Newsnight's coverage was serious, you know, even if people didn't always agree with it, it, it was it was serious journalism. And I spoke to people with a very wide range of views. And I think the challenge was accurately reflecting everybody. And I think I have, and I think I've been as fair as I can, but being prepared to, to challenge. And I challenged everybody, both those critical mm. of the service and those who were supportive of the service, you know, challenging them with opposing views, but also where there was documentary evidence that suggested something else, then, you know, raising that because that's what you have to do. And I thought it was striking, actually, that depending who it was, many people weren't aware of many of the things that were going on in the background of the service, even while they weren't there. So that that was very interesting. And then, And one of the other challenges was just that some of the material was very distressing. And talking to people raised many ethical, moral, um, journalistic dilemmas. And it's a very lonely experience writing a book. And the joy of working in broadcast generally is that you're always part of a, a team, albeit it may be very small, but you're usually not on your own. And it was, um, it was challenging trying to think, what do I do here in some cases? Tell me then about getting a publisher for the book, because, you know, lots of interest in this subject matter. Yeah, you'd been on uh, BBC Newsnight. And yet my understanding is it wasn't that easy to get a publisher, was it? I was really surprised. I mean, I wasn't I wasn't so arrogant as to think, yeah, Penguin are going to give me £50,000 advance to write this book. Like, absolutely not. But... I have a wonderful agent. He's very experienced, a guy called Toby Mundy. And, you know, he handpicked the people that, you know, good people, big publishers to to send this to, to send. And it was a really detailed proposal. It was like 17,000 words. You know, I think it was well written. It was, I mean, the style of the book um, and sort of, it wasn't a blueprint, but it set out broadly what the chapters would be and, you know, the feel of it and, and the approach that I would take. And no one would take it. I mean, it would. I actually didn't realise until very recently how many people he had sent it to. I thought it was far fewer, but he sent it to 22 publishers, none of whom wanted to offer on it, many of whom didn't even respond, which he tells me is really, really strange, that you'd usually get an email response from 90% of people you'd send a proposal to, either saying yes or no. And I think in this case... It was around 50%, a little over 50%. And of those who responded, there was no negative responses at all. But essentially not for them, too controversial. It would upset existing authors they had on their books or uh, junior members of staff. But fortunately, Swift Press, which is a small independent publisher, they understood what the book was about and what Importantly, it wasn't about, and, and they offered. Uh, so, yes, the 23rd publisher came good. But I was surprised. <laughs> and, and actually, when when no one was taking it for a while, it was really demoralising. Because the reason I wanted to write the book was because I felt this, I felt very strongly this was a story that had to be told, that there had to be as close to what could be a definitive account as possible of this, because things have gone wrong. And only by discussing what's gone wrong and right can can we learn and, and make services better in the future. 
And I thought, wow, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to tell this story. So it all came fine in the end, but yeah. I mean, you've had some terrific reviews. Uh, have, has it all been positive? Overwhelmingly, it has been. Obviously, there has been some negative responses, but mainly from, you know, individuals on Twitter. There's a couple that pop up quite a lot, but I, I can understand some of that. I think some of them have children who are struggling with their gender identity and, and they're very angry. None of them have read the book. And I think people that are critical assume that the book says things that it doesn't. And I think sometimes, I mean, I'm immensely grateful for all the coverage there's been in, in the newspapers across of all political stripes. But I think sometimes it's led people to think the book says certain things where it doesn't. And even you know, even the claims that have made headlines in the book, they're far more nuanced. And, you know, when taken in context, they're not quite, I mean, not, you know, it's different. Reading 375 pages is different to to reading a newspaper article. So, I mean, I've been overwhelmed with the response. I mean, positive reviews in, you know, The Guardian, The Observer, The FT, The Times, The Mail on Sunday, Telegraph. I mean, to me, that that absolutely highlights that this isn't an ideological story. It's a healthcare story. Because to get positive reviews and to be interviewed by the New Statesman and, you know, yourselves and Byline and, and yes, others who are more conservative. But it, it's not a right left issue. It's it's about healthcare, and it's about what we do going forward. So, I mean, I've been absolutely delighted by the response. But, yeah, there has been some negativity, but very, very small. And I would just encourage people to read it because it's it absolutely acknowledges that transition works for some people and I've spoken to them and I I don't question that but I think it's been a mixed bag and it, it the one size fits all approach has not worked for, for others and I, I just don't think we can deny that really. What would be your advice to early career journalists regarding this type of source-based calm journalism which you know we have to admit is increasingly rare so i think the first thing is don't take no for an answer i mean don't be rude but i don't think i've ever sent an email and got a positive response straight away well not ever but you know always follow up and people are busy and actually showing that you're prepared to send more than one message to get to them i mean don't pester people but that's really important perseverance and be be polite be polite is so important. I think you don't have to be a mathematician, but to have some grasp of numbers and data is really important. I think always read the actual document. Don't read a press release. Don't read a summary of it. And I'm talking about, I mean, they can be very, very dry and difficult to read, but actually lots of academic papers, and that's what I've done here in the book, gone back to the source material. Often... You know, particularly in in healthcare, you'll have the summary or the abstract, and then you'll have the paper. Well, often the top line that you're given in that abstract is not really borne out by the body of the paper. And it's sometimes easier than others. But, you know, often if the data are there, you can think, hang on, I'm not sure it actually says that. And, And there are always people who are better than you that that can help. So don't be afraid to ask questions. I think it's really important to acknowledge what we don't know as well as what we do know. And I think in this field in particular, 
there's this real desire for certainty, you know, either that it's a massive medical scandal or that treatment for gender questioning children should go further and faster and, and it works and it's great and, and everybody's happy on the medical interventions. We don't know either way because the data are really poor, you know, and I think we have to admit and, and, and when, when studies are flawed methodologically, you can't cherry pick the ones that suit your argument better. I mean, I'm not saying that I have an argument, but this is what certain people do, that the studies that show something is good, well, actually, they're all flawed. The studies that show it's bad, oh, it's really bad. Well, no, because they're, they're flawed too. So, it, you know, so don't, don't cherry pick. Question yourself all the time. Like, you, sh- you know, I hope, I mean, I've been asked in interviews, or oh, what's your opinion? What's your opinion? I don't think that's my job to give people my opinion. I don't think... For the type of journalism I enjoy doing and I think that makes impact, it's not your job to tell people what to think. It's your job to present the evidence as fairly and as balanced as you can in as compelling a way as you can and let other people reach their own conclusions. You don't need to tell people what to think. It is frightening going against the grain, but once you've had a look at something properly and it doesn't look right, then you might well be right, even if you're in the minority or even if you're, you think you're in the minority and keep, you know, keep going. But don't, equally, don't be so pig-headed that if it's clear that you're wrong, then you're wrong, you know. But don't, don't, don't be frightened of doing difficult journalism because that's what we're here for. Ultimately, journalists should be providing a public service. It's our job to shine a light on the areas of, society, public policy, whatever, that are really important to to people and to help us understand those things better and, if necessary, you know, perhaps bring about change. But not in a campaign-y way, but, you know, that is our job, is to help people understand the world that we live in better. You know, one thing I would say about a tip as well is I think always treat your contributors with respect and decency keep them informed reply to them and sometimes you have to have a difficult conversation with them as well and I think even those that won't agree with your final product if you treat people with respect then you can't really do any more than that but it's really really important because without people who are willing to share their experiences with you you've got no story and we don't have a job (laughs) You've been listening to JLab, a podcast brought to you by the Civic Journalism Lab at Newcastle University. My name's Ian Wiley. Thanks for tuning in.